You're listening to Breast Cancer Connection, where we connect you with breast cancer experts on what you need to know to navigate your experience. Hello, I'm Kathy Amendalea, and today we're talking about metastatic breast cancer terminology. To help us really understand the basics, we'll be joined by Dr. Christine Bresden-Masley, medical oncologist and first medical director of the cancer program at Sinai Health in Toronto. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bresden-Masley. Thank you for having me. Today, we're talking about understanding the basics of metastatic breast cancer terminology to help inform decisions. So I'll start off with some questions. Some of the key clinical data terms that patients may be most familiar or maybe not uh, would be OS, QOL, PFS, etc. Can you expand on these acronyms, what they are and what these terms mean and how to refer to them? We have important clinical endpoints in clinical trials. And one of them for metastatic breast cancer is progression-free survival, also known as PFS. And what this tells us is it's a measurement of how long a person is on treatment until that treatment stops working, until that disease starts progressing. So we call it time from randomization onto the clinical trial to the point that we see first signs of progression. And progressions typically are from scans. So patients will have multiple CT scans primarily. And when we certainly see growth on a CT scan, if someone has, for example, liver metastases, that's cancer that has spread into the liver, and we see those spots in the liver growing, then we, that is a sign of progression. Alternatively, sometimes patients just don't tolerate treatment and they become more fatigued, more unwell. And sometimes these are clinical signs of progression. So that's the importance of progression-free survival, otherwise known as PFS. And some of the measurements we discuss is median progression-free survival. And median, all that means is where 50% of patients have progressed. So it's just basically a time point where 50% of our patients have progressed and 50% of our patients have not, have remained on treatment. Another very important clinical trial endpoint and a clinical endpoint for us is overall survival. How long are patients surviving? And so once again, um, for the clinical trial, the OS is the overall survival, so time when a patient starts on treatment for the clinical trial till the very end. So the patient can be on three, four, five, six different lines of treatment. And we try to follow those patients um, till the very end. So as you can see, there is a huge amount of resources put into clinical trials because we do tend to follow patients uh, rigorously throughout their, uh, throughout the years, actually, even though they're off of treatment. Another important clinical endpoint is quality of life, known as QOL. And really over the last 20 to 30 years, we've really focused on this because for us, it is how well are patients living with this therapy? So clinical trials tell us the effectiveness, the efficacy, the effectiveness of treatment and the safety. So we look at side effects known as adverse events. But now we want to hear from the patient. 
So these are really self-reported questionnaires that we will give to patients. And they will tell us, how is their pain? Are they able to perform their activities of daily living? Is there fatigue? What is the sense of well-being of the patient? How are they functioning day to day? How are they functioning within their family and family dynamics, so social functioning? So the overall and global health-related quality of life is such an important clinical endpoint for us now too, because if we provide a treatment that has some benefit in progression-free survival, but the side effect is severe abdominal cramping and diarrhea, where the patient is going to the bathroom six, seven, eight times a day, then their quality of life may not be that good. And so these are all parameters. These are all measurements that we look at to ensure that we're providing the best care, best treatment for our patients. And so uh, are these uh, definitions clearly discussed with patients so that they don't end up being confused? Because they can be overwhelming and confused when you start on a clinical trial with everything that is uh, delivered to them in terms of uh, information and other uh, tests that will go on. So if a patient is being screened for a clinical trial... Uh, there's a whole screening process for eligibility. And when we discuss a clinical trial with a patient, uh, typically we are comparing it to standard of care. And we don't really know what the benefits will be. We have some idea of some toxicity. So we can say, you may develop a rash, you may lose your hair, you might have some nausea, you might have a drop in your white blood cell counts. So we have an idea from earlier clinical trials with, say, the newer therapy, but we don't necessarily know what the survival rate, so either progression-free survival or overall survival, and another important feature or clinical endpoint is overall objective response rate. So how much are those tumors shrinking? What is the response to the tumors or the metastatic sites? So all of these are coming through the clinical trial. However, if we have those results and the clinical trial has ended and now we have a new standard of care and we've had many advances in metastatic breast cancer, then we can start saying, well, 50% of our patients uh, are on treatment for about two years. Theoretically, patients do well. These are the side effects. That is how we discuss newer therapies with patients. Um, we also talk, we can talk about quality of life. Um, well, you know, that patients are functioning better. We don't focus so much in the clinic on quality of life. For us more, it's important that we're not doing any harm to patients with this therapy. Are there any other clinical terminologies that you would say would uh, be top that the patients should be understanding more clearly? And would the caregivers also be included in these discussions so that they have a sense of what's going on? Well, I think one big explosion has been oncogenomics. Patients want to have their tumors profiled. 
And, you know, slowly we're getting more information with respect to how we can do this because the costs have truly been prohibitive. So, for example, in the United States, patients or their insurance will pay thousands of dollars to have a piece of their tumor profile to say, is there a genetic driver? Is there some genomic driver that we can target with treatment? Here in Canada, we really focus on the treatments that are currently available through the clinical trial data, so through all of the trials that are, have already been reported. And then we have these companion diagnostics, which means that if there's a mutation in the tumor, we will look for that mutation, and then we can certainly provide treatment that's Health Canada approved. So that's been, I think, a big shift now is that as we're learning more about these genomic drivers of tumors, we're able to either put patients on clinical trial to study these genomic drivers with special targeted therapies, or we are now looking at um, how we can uh, ensure that uh, we get that whole tumor profile and We are working with Cancer Care Ontario and other agencies across Canada to ensure that we're doing the best to identify these genomic drivers within tumors. But currently today, that is not standard of care. Patients always also will ask us, um, how do I know that this treatment is working? How do I know uh, that uh, the cancer is, is, am I cancer-free, for example? Uh, and I don't use the terminology of cancer-free uh, because when it, with metastatic disease, I think that we can have no evidence of disease, but that doesn't mean that there may not be cancer cells that could be still within the body, but just they're not doing anything. So I think more it's more important that we can look at no evidence of disease as opposed to cancer-free, but we are now looking at the blood, for example, circulating tumor cells and circulating tumor DNA. So as tumors shed and die, they will release their DNA into the blood, and now we have technology to be able to detect that. And by being able to detect that, sometimes that can drive whether or not we maybe stop therapy, maybe we change therapy. Um, And so that will be another marker for us to determine moving forward whether or not we can even test targets within that circulating tumor DNA. So I get genomics and we call these liquid biopsies. If we're talking about data to make informed decisions, how does the oncologist and the patient discuss this? So what would you as an oncologist Uh, say, to encourage or support a a patient to think critically about the kinds of information that they're reading and they're coming across or others have been giving to them while they're going through this uh, decision-making process? So cancer patients have a whole cancer healthcare team. And that healthcare team uh, will include their treating oncologists, uh, their nurses, They may have a psychiatrist, they might have a social worker, they might have a palliative care physician. Um, And so there is a whole team that takes care of that patient. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's important that the patient is aware of their diagnosis. It's important that the patient is aware if they receive no treatment, what their prognosis looks like. And it's important 
for the patient to know that there are multiple treatments that we actually can now offer for metastatic breast cancer patients. And we use the terminology, we have a lot of, we have a lot of tools in our toolbox. And that toolbox is getting bigger and bigger. So that's the good news, is that we have understood how certain breast cancers work and what certain targets are for those breast cancers. There's different types of breast cancers. There's different types of metastatic breast cancer. And when we talk about first line, second line, third line, it's important that the treating medical oncologist obviously talks about the different treatments that are available, the side effects of those treatments. And why do we know about those treatments? Because of the clinical trials that patients went through so that we could achieve these benefits for our patients. And when you're having that discussion with either the patient and with their caregivers, is just to be aware of what's important with respect to how they're tolerating their treatment, what types of supports they need, and the supports that we provide. So our pharmacy team can provide supportive medication. Our palliative care team can also provide supportive medication. And of course, me as a treating oncologist provides supportive education and medication. So I think this is all part of the treatment team that really works together with our patients and their caregivers to ensure that they understand their breast cancer diagnosis, and they understand their treatment options that are being offered to them. And so do you often recommend that they bring a caregiver with them when they're making these decisions? We do. I think it's very important to have someone with one of our patients, with our patients as they're coming in for treatment, just for support, to have another set of eyes and ears to help them navigate the system because it is extremely overwhelming to receive the diagnosis, to receive all this information. And it's, it's, it can be very emotional. Patients may not be feeling well. They may be in pain. They may be nauseous. So I think it's important to always have support, if available, to ensure that all the information is properly being recorded and that a proper discussion is being made because it's important to hear what the goals of the patient are. Physicians may have their goals, caregivers may have their goals, but the most important is to focus on the patient and to ensure that the patient's needs are met. And uh, when these patients are part of these clinical trials or part of this uh, specific drug journey, are the patients given information as to where to contact one of the healthcare team easily in case they get confused or scared or or forget to ask even simple questions? Yeah, so the big difference if someone is enrolled into a clinical trial is that they are micromanaged. That's the way I kind of describe it, is that when they do uh, consent to participate into a clinical trial, they are usually coming in more frequently. They're coming in for uh, frequent examinations, uh, frequent, frequent assessments, frequent blood draws, frequent tests. So there is a, a bigger burden on a patient to participate in a clinical trial, but they're also being monitored 
very intensely compared to a patient who is not on a clinical trial. So standard of care is that uh, patients uh, have access to usually the team, which will consist of the physician and or the nurse and or a social worker. So typically there is a team. Now every clinic does function differently. So some clinics may have a primary nurse, some may not. Um, Sometimes you just have to call the oncologist's office We are lucky in Ontario, for example, is that patients who are on active systemic therapy, so any chemotherapy or targeted therapy or any form of therapy, we have a nursing line. So our patients can contact a nurse after hours and on weekends to guide them with respect to any symptom management that they require. And so when we're talking about resources, what resource-centered around clinical trial data terminology do you recommend to patients that will help them better understand the medical, the uh, metastatic breast cancer terminology? Well, everything can be found on the internet these days. <laughs> um, but, you know, some really good websites, obviously, uh, Canadian Breast Cancer Network, there is Rethink Breast Cancer, there's a Canadian Cancer Society, uh, there's also the um, the the U.S. site, which is the National Cancer Institute. These are really credible uh, websites where you can get some information. And lastly, a little bit more detailed, but it's clinicaltrials.gov. And every clinical trial in the world that is being run is registered on clinicaltrials.gov. And uh, a person can peruse that and see what kind of treatments there are, how to, what are the eligibility criteria to be enrolled into the clinical trial, what are these clinical endpoints, such as we talked about progression-free survival or overall survival or response rate. So these are all, uh, all really detailed in clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and also provides kind of a framework, what is there available? So you could put in metastatic breast cancer, estrogen receptor positive, and it can give you a whole variety list of clinical trials that are available. And certainly you can see in Canada or the U.S., uh, for example, in North America, where they're available. And so based on what we've discussed and all the points that we've discussed during this conversation, what would be a couple of key takeaways that you feel after Uh, having had so many patients in your clinic, would be the most important for patients to understand right from the beginning in order to make their journey a lot simpler? I think number one is to take some notes, if you can. A patient will receive a lot of information, knowing what type of breast cancer you've been diagnosed with, knowing where your breast cancer has metastasized to. So for example... Do I have HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer? Do I have ER positive HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer? Do I have triple negative breast cancer? I think that terminology, knowing the subtype of breast cancer you have is important. Then of course, knowing where the cancer has spread to and having a frank conversation, what does this mean? What does this mean for my prognosis and what can be done to improve my prognosis? What kind of treatment is available? Are there any clinical trials available to me? And that's a start. Once you 
once your physician, once your medical oncologist provides you with a treatment plan, the questions are, what's the treatment? What type of treatment is this? What are the side effects? How will I feel? How long will I be on treatment? How long will it extend my life? These are hard conversations to have, but these are important conversations to have. It's important for for understanding goals of therapy, having the conversation about what type of supports a patient will need. For example, do they need to have supports from the palliative care team? And palliative care is a scary word, but really they're a great group of physicians that really are there for symptom management, primarily for symptom management. If you're having ongoing nausea, ongoing pain, they really are experts in addressing these issues. And lastly, I think the psychosocial piece is very important, is to provide patients with either a social worker or a psychiatrist who can really provide a framework to decrease anxiety and really discuss goals of care as well. These are all important to support our patients through their metastatic breast cancer journey. Thank you, Dr. Bresden Mesley, for spending time with us today. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us on this episode of Breast Cancer Connection, and thanks again for your time. For information and resources discussed today, take a look at our episode show notes and visit cbcn.ca to learn more. You can also find us on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and join us next time for another episode of Breast Cancer Connection. We'd like to remind our listeners that what we've discussed in this podcast shouldn't be taken as medical advice. Any examples, tips, and or insight from this episode should be further discussed with patients, personal caregivers, and healthcare providers.